Hello and welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Mason embarks on trick-taking missions in space in The Crew, Sarah journals her way through time in Wait For Me, Ruth delivers fruit in Finca, Ruel goes to the beach in Santa Monica, and I try not to bust in Can't Stop. Here's Mason. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about The Crew, The Quest for Planet Nine. If you're a regular listener, and I know you are, you'll remember that Megan and I love trick-taking games. I've talked about a few in the past. Stiekel in episode 12, German Whist in episode 47, O'Hell in episode 55, and Schnapsen in episode 82. I've played a few modern trick-takers that I like fairly well. Diamonds, solid but fiddly. Pups, cute but nothing new. Fox in the Forest, tight but I don't really like special powers. Uh, plums, genius but very hard to wrap your head around. Potato Man, excellent but hard to obtain. And Spires, actually pretty damn great and I really do need to cover it someday. Even though I don't really buy new games very often, and I'm definitely anti-hype and opposed to the cult of the new, the crew's early buzz this year as a cooperative, progressive trick-taking game had me interested. It won the Kennerspiel de Jar this year, which is surprising given its low price point and small box size, in part because of the win and the associated demand, I assume. Cosmos cranked out English-language copies of Thomas Singh's new game, and they're finally widely available. I paid about $15 for it, but you could probably get it for as little as 12 if you were making a big order from an online game store and hit the free shipping threshold. But you shouldn't do that. Just pay the $6 shipping or pick this up from your local game store. So anyway, we got it. And we played about halfway through the included 50 missions. What's the deal with it? I think it's important for you to know that we're only playing it two-player, and that we're a couple, and that we're each other's primary gaming partners, and that we've been playing trick-taking games together and against each other for almost 20 years, and that we really like trick-taking games. I tell you this because it colors my feelings about the crew. But also, I don't want you to expect something out of the crew that you and your group don't have to give to it. Megan and I love this game. The crew is, I think, the first game I've ever played where the trick-taking itself wasn't the game, but the method by which the game is played. Another way to think about that is that the trick-taking isn't the software, it's the hardware. The actual game here is the missions in the book. They're challenges that you beat by playing a trick-taking game in a certain way cooperatively. In the crew, the goal is not get all the points or get none of the points like other trick-taking games. The goal changes every hand. It might be this player wins these particular cards in a particular order, or no player can win a trick with a nine, stuff like that. Now, if you've never played a trick-taking game before, that's okay too. The early missions in the book warm you up to the rules and concepts, sort of video game style. They're very simple, and they get progressively more difficult and incorporate new concepts over time. Since you can play them again and again until you get them right, it's sort of impossible not to figure it out and move forward. Of course, the downside of that is it reduces your score in the end. We're playing the Crew 2 player, so we're using the 2 player variant, which I usually hate in a game, but I think it actually works here. There's a half-hidden dummy hand on the table, and the player who's in command for the round controls it. I do think the 2 player rules could be slightly more specific on a few points, but since it's a co-op, we've opted to err on the side of whatever is just more difficult. We've hit a few snags where a mission was simply impossible to complete because the cards we needed were underneath the dummy hand in a way that prevented us from playing them, but that does nicely simulate a human player making a mistake, which is pretty hard for an AI to do. So far, at least, we have a solid score with only a few missions we've had to play twice. We're treating the game as a cooperative puzzle experience, and I think once we finish, we may play back through with the more difficult three-player variant in the rulebook, which removes one of the card suits. At two-player with four suits, you have an ample opportunity to slough off bad cards off-suit to get what you want, but with only three suits, I think that will become significantly more challenging. Part of the appeal of the crew right now, for me, 
as at least the U.S. is basically still in quarantine, is that it offers something new and different every game without having to take on new rules or new information. The goal changes, but the structure is still the same. The strategy changes, but the tools to achieve it are still the same. It's both comforting and stimulating and is exactly what I've been looking for this summer. I've had almost zero mental energy to learn any new games this year, but living in hell will do that to a person, I suppose. So the low rules overhead combined with new challenges every round have been especially satisfying for us. But Mason, you say, this is a ripoff. After I play the challenges, the game is worthless. Oh yeah? Is Super Mario Bros. 3 worthless just because you beat it when you were 10? The crew will be infinitely replayable and future-proof, simply because of the fact that generating user content for it is accessible and costs nothing. There are already 18 new challenges that Cosmos put out this year. That's one Spielbox promo and five chapters of the Dimios adventure. And the KSDJ win is going to generate strong sales, which is going to generate expansions. I would expect, and this is purely speculation, another mini-expansion for Essen this year at least, and maybe a full-box expansion with new missions and new tokens next year. People on BGG are already making their own challenges, and online play is coming incredibly soon. There are already a couple of cobbled-together implementations on the web. Check the show notes for links to all of this. And Board Game Arena is alpha-testing their version. The crew is perfect for online play, because there shouldn't be any talking about what you have in your hand anyway. So, who should play the crew? People who like trick-taking games, people who like cooperative puzzles, people who like limited communication games, and people who like astronaut stuff. I give the crew 50 out of 50 outer space-themed missions that I didn't really bother going into here because I'm totally indifferent to the theme, but some people seem to like it, so good for them. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Discount Compost, as well as on BoardGameGeek as Breakfast Core. Wash your hands and wear a mask. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, talking about a game I finally got my hands on after years of failed attempts. 2020's months of quarantine have been a time for revisiting the games we already have on our shelves, and so a few months ago I taught my husband Finca. First published in 2009, this Wolfgang Senker and Ralph Serlin design from Hansom Gluck was out of print by the time I learned of it, and it remained so for years. But after multiple rumored re-releases and one announced but cancelled reprint, Finca finally returned in 2018 via a Kickstarter campaign, and I grabbed myself a copy. This classic Euro game puts two to four players in the role of Mallorcan farmers, harvesting fruits and delivering them across the island to fulfill contracts. Think is a relatively simple game, but it still does some interesting things. Player turns start with the active player moving one of their farmer figures on the windmill blades that make up the game's rondelle. The figure moves a number of spaces equal to the number of farmer pieces on the space that it left, including itself. Upon reaching its destination blade, the player harvests the fruit type shown on the space, receiving a number equal to the number of farmers on the space now that the new one has arrived. If they cross the equator of the rondelle in the process, the player also gets a donkey cart, necessary for making deliveries in the second, optional phase of their turn. To deliver, the player turns in one of these carts, plus up to six fruits, to complete contracts for various communities. Each place on the island has a stack of four contract tiles, the top one being visible to players. The contracts show between one and six particular fruits that need to be turned in, and will be worth that number of points at the end of the game. Once a location has had all four of its deliveries completed, a wooden finca is placed in the space, and the bonus tile from that location is awarded to the player whose completed contracts show the most of the depicted fruit. Once a number of finca pieces have been placed, depending on player count, the game ends and players will add up their points. 
Fink is quick and easy to teach, using simple mechanics in an effective, satisfying way, but it adds a few quirks in there. The farmer movement is entirely dependent on the placement of everybody else's pieces, so there's a good amount of player interaction since everything you do affects somebody else, and you can often spoil plans you didn't even know your opponents were making. The game also gives each player a set of single-use tiles they can use to break the rules for more effective turns. They may let them deliver more fruits or move their farmer twice, for example. These tiles are worth a few points if unused, but will often yield a lot more value through the timely use of their power. There are also bonuses available for completing a set of contracts valued from 1 to 6, so players are incentivized to complete less valuable contracts, keeping the game moving. The most interesting twist in play to me, however, is the limited resource count. Depending on the number of players, only a particular number of each fruit and of the donkey carts are put out during setup. Any time that a player needs to take a resource but the supply doesn't have enough, then every single player at the table has to return everything they have of that item before the player then takes what they've earned. So if you're working towards a large contract of a single fruit type, you'd better keep an eye on how many everyone else has, lest you be forced to return your goods before you get the chance to deliver them. It makes for a tighter game, it prevents players from hoarding large amounts of resources, and just like those contract bonuses, it keeps the deliveries going, preventing the game from dragging on. Now one note on that last point. The original rules did not change the number of fruits in play with player count, so two-player games weren't nearly as tight. But this was apparently a mistake. The rule was supposed to be there all along, and so it was included in the reprint. This is the one rule change in my version, and it's one I absolutely agree with. The other changes for the reprint are cosmetic in nature. My copy has a much larger board and box than the original, plus it came with wooden donkey carts in addition to the punchboard ones. It also includes the 2010L Rizul expansion in the box, bringing some extra variability. But from my memories of playing an original copy, regardless of the edition you get your hands on, the production quality of Finca is really nice. The vibrant art, colorful, uniquely shaped wooden fruit pieces, and easy-to-understand textless iconography makes for a charming presentation that doesn't hinder gameplay, though players might occasionally argue over exactly what types of fruit are being represented. But the real question is, was the game worth the wait? Well, maybe. Finca isn't my favorite game of all time, but it is a game that will not be leaving my collection. It does what it does extremely well. It offers a solid Eurogame experience in just 45 minutes or so. It's a game that new players can pick up quickly, but that experienced players can dig into, especially when it comes to manipulating the rondelle setup to your advantage, and I do love the feeling of pulling off a great move on that windmill. I'm unlikely to ever turn the game down when offered, and I love introducing it to more people, but I have to admit that Finca's just a bit too simple for my tastes overall. It's a game I'd pepper in amongst other more complicated offerings, or that I turn to on post-work nights when I'm feeling a bit brain dead. So in the end, I'd definitely say try Finca if you get the opportunity, but don't expend a lot of effort or money trying to get your hands on a copy if you haven't played it first. And should you find a copy, don't forget to let me know your thoughts on this 2009 classic. You can find me on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Wait For Me is unlike any game I've ever played. It's described as a 22-day journaling game about time travel and connection, but that doesn't begin to convey the intensity of the experience. You play yourself, traveling through time to visit younger you. You never interact directly with yourself, sidestepping any temporal paradoxes you might wonder about if you ever watched classic Doctor Who. 
Instead, you arrive at or just before crucial moments in your own past and leave messages for yourself in your own diary. Each day you get a prompt telling you what's going on in your life and a word count. It's the first day of high school and you have exactly 50 words to tell yourself anything you think will help prepare you. That's not one of the actual prompts, but similar. The exact word count was a surprising challenge. Every day I found myself sitting with the text, adjusting words here and there until I had it exactly right and could copy into my journal. You could just write on your computer, but Wait For Me encourages you to handwrite in a paper journal, and it did enhance the experience for me. The solo rules of Wait For Me are straightforward. You just write in your journal every day. If you have two players, one is the time traveler and the other is the younger you the time traveler is writing to. I suspect two-player rules feel more like a conventional RPG, as the traveler gives the advice and the diarist responds to it, together the two players may develop a composite character who embodies the experiences of both. But with Solo, you're just drawing from your own life. There's no role. My group talked about pairing up and playing two-player rules, but we had five people, so we decided to play the Solo rules and share our journal entries among the whole group. Wait For Me was on Kickstarter in July 2020 and ran as a real-time event in August, with designers Gian Shim and Kevin Culp emailing each day's prompt to players for 22 days. That event is over, but you can still get Wait For Me from Shim's website, gianshim.itch.io, as a PDF of all 22 days. I confess I didn't know a lot about Wait For Me when the first prompt arrived. My friends suggested it. It seemed like a fun and novel way to play a game remotely. Basically, all I knew was it was a journaling RPG, and to be honest, I wish I had been better prepared. I thought Wait For Me would start easy and gradually get more intense, but even the first couple of days really packed a wallop. I don't actually think it was intended to be so difficult so fast, but the prompts are about a wide range of life events, which are going to land very differently with some folks than with others. I'm going to talk now about an example that gets into difficult content and is also a spoiler, So if that's a concern for you, skip ahead 15 seconds now. Okay, the prompt on day two asks you to write about the first person you fell in love with. Well, I was assaulted by the first person I fell in love with, so my advice to my younger self was very different than what they probably intended. I don't think my experience was that uncommon, so maybe they should have predicted it could go that way. And being confronted with that memory that early in the game honestly felt a bit cruel. Playing Wait For Me was not always easy. At times it felt like being asked to peel back a different past trauma every day, which would be hard any time, but especially in the middle of a massive collective trauma. One of our group basically dropped out. She stopped looking at the prompts but continued reading what the rest of us wrote. I wonder if she ever had trouble figuring out the day's prompt based on our entries. I only skipped once, but sometimes I didn't share what I wrote. And sometimes I ignored the prompt and wrote about something trivial and unrelated that would have interested younger me. I guess we could have made up fictional characters, but that would have felt somehow against the spirit of the game. On a more prosaic note, some prompts describe life situations that just did not work for some or all of our group. Again, this is a spoiler, no sensitive content this time, but if you need to, skip ahead 15 seconds now. Okay, one prompt said that the first time you travel alone is also the first time you were ever in a big city, and you'd find it a strange and alien place. That is a huge assumption. Literally over a billion people grew up in large cities. The instructions say to adapt the prompt however you need, and I did, but every time I read that one, or a few others that similarly missed the mark, it pulled me right out of the game. 
I'd be thinking about why they thought that prompt would have any connection to my life, not about what it was trying to convey. At this point, you may be wondering if I enjoyed Wait For Me at all, and am I recommending it? And if not, why am I reviewing it? I did enjoy it, and I do recommend it. I just want you to know what you're getting into. Wait For Me pushes the boundaries of what a game is. It's a game with no way to win or lose. It's an RPG where you play yourself. In my experience, games that reject convention to this degree are fascinating to play, can be thrilling even to see how they expand the definitions, but not always that fun. It's called a game about time travel and connection, but I think really Wait For Me is a game about vulnerability. It's not for everyone. If you had a traumatic childhood, you may want to avoid it. On the other hand, maybe you'd get a lot out of it. The game is about knowing yourself, and you have to know yourself well enough to know whether you'll be okay with the experience. And that's Wait For Me. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you can recommend other journaling RPGs, then I really want to hear from you. Seriously, my group would love to play another socially distant journaling game. I love breaking out a simple classic game that is either so familiar that it doesn't require teaching or so straightforward that it's quick to teach. Can't Stop has the potential to be both of those. Designed by Sid Saxon in 1980, it's older than anything else on my shelf and it has stood the test of time. Can't Stop is published by Parker Brothers, Eagle Griffin Games, and many others, as there have been many editions released in different countries over the years. The artist for Eagle Griffin's 2011 edition is Gabriel Lalunen II. Can't Stop is a press your luck game that would make a great introduction to press your luck as a mechanism, second only to Cheeky Monkey in my book. The game is played on a big board. In many editions, it's a big hunk of red plastic. It has these vertical tracks numbered from 2 to 12 as you move left to right. These are the possible totals you could get from rolling two six-sided dice and adding the results. Lowest would be 2, highest would be 12. The object of the game is to move three of your pawns from the bottom of the board to the top. You do that by rolling four six-sided dice on your turn and pairing them up to add up to one or two totals. For example, if you rolled a 1, a 2, a 3, and a 4, you could move your pawns on 3 and 7, or you could pair them up differently to move up on 4 and 6, or move one pawn twice on column 5. The board is designed so that the most common totals in the middle of the range have more spaces on them. So you can try to move up a whole bunch of times on the 7 column, which is the tallest, or get a 2 or a 12 just a few times, or work on numbers in between. There are two things that can limit your progress on your turn. First of all, you only have three pawns, so you can work on up to three columns in a single turn. Second, as your opponents start to finish columns, those columns become unavailable to you. You can't advance on them or finish them. So, if everyone got the same number of die rolls on their turn, the game would wear pretty thin because the only thing players would be able to control is how they pair up their dice. But the rule that makes Can't Stop work is that you can roll as many times as you want, hence the name Can't Stop. However, should you ever roll a combination of dice that doesn't allow you to move on any track, your turn will end immediately and you'll lose all of the progress you made that turn. In order to keep your progress, you'll have to choose to stop and hand it over to the next player. What I like about Press Your Luck games like Can't Stop is that they allow you to easily adjust your strategy according to how other people are doing. If I feel like someone else is getting close to winning, I can take bigger risks in order to catch up 
And if that fails, well, I probably wouldn't have won anyway. Can't Stop is a great light game where you don't have to pay a lot of attention during other people's turns. So if you're playing with people you haven't seen in a while and people are chatty, or if there's a TV or something distracting going on in the background, you're still going to be able to play. It's really approachable for family members and casual gamers who don't want to sit through a long rules explanation or commit to a two-hour game. Can't Stop is not text-dependent, so as long as people can read the dice, you should be good to go. I think it would be good for reinforcing math skills with kids since there is so much adding involved. It does rely on color to distinguish player markers, so if you have four players, you would have to look at green player markers against a red background. The main drawback of Can't Stop for most people is going to be the replayability. The replayability doesn't really compare to card games with variable setups or board games with variable player powers and so on. It's the same board, same concept every time. So you'd have to rely on your other games to give you that sense of variety. On the other hand, the press your luck mechanism does give Can't Stop a feeling of suspense. Is your friend going to go for the win and then bust? Will someone who has kind of fallen out of it be able to get back in? I feel like that excitement is a decent stand-in for the replayability and theme that other games can offer. The components are incredibly durable, and the game will either outlast you or you'll start losing pieces before the game actually fails on you. If your game group likes to eat lots of messy snacks, this is the perfect thing to pull out because you can't really hurt it by getting it dirty. You can play Can't Stop Online at Board Game Arena, and there's also an Android app called Can't Stop Dice that will roll your dice for you and give you the possible combinations. If you have the space on your shelf, Can't Stop is worth a place in lots of collections. You can find me on Instagram at d6cmarie. Thanks for listening! Locals playing volleyball. Tourists grabbing a bite to eat at a trendy new restaurant. Booming sidewalk businesses a stone's throw away from the beautiful Pacific Ocean. Can you build an oceanfront empire in Santa Monica, California? Friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Santa Monica, a game designed by Josh Wood with art by Jeremy Wynn. Santa Monica was published in 2020 by AEG, who sent me a review copy. In Santa Monica, you're putting together the best oceanfront in Southern California. From a beautiful beach filled with outdoor activities to bustling street-side businesses, your stretch of Santa Monica will feature various points of interest for locals, tourists, and VIPs. Each turn you'll perform three actions. First, you'll select a feature card from the two-row display and place it in your city tableau. Second, you'll take any placement actions on that card. And finally, you'll refresh the display. When taking the first action, you have two options. You may take any feature card from the first row of the display, or you may take a sand dollar action. There are two sand dollar actions randomly chosen before each game, and each action's costs differ. For example, you may be able to pay three sand dollars to take a feature card from the back row and move up to four people one space each. After all players have added 14 features to their city, the game is over and the player with the most victory points wins. From the moment I saw the box, I was intrigued by Santa Monica. As a native Southern Californian, I couldn't wait to see how my home state was used in a board game. And in that first play of Santa Monica, I learned that the game had a Southern California laid-back style of play, but it certainly didn't lack the tense moments found in the card drafting phases of classics like Blood Rage or Imperial Settlers. Each turn you're simply taking a card from the display and adding it to your two-row tableau, one for the street-side businesses, the other for the beach. 
Various location tags representing local spots, tourist spots, sports, nature, and more can be found on certain cards. You'll collect these for victory points, scoring them for either sets or adjacency. Of course, your opponents are doing the same thing, but not necessarily for the same reasons. They may be collecting different location tags, or those eagle-eyed players may be hate drafting the cards you need for your burgeoning city. What separates Santa Monica from other tableau builders, though, is its clever use of meeples. These are the people who inhabit your city, beginning with your randomly chosen starting tile. These meeples are either VIPs, locals, or tourists. Depending on what feature cards you add to your city, you'll add one or more of these types of meeples. The people in your city, though, need to find something to do. VIPs typically want to wander around to certain locations, gaining points as they arrive at each one. Locals and tourists, though, look for their preferred spots in the form of activity rings. Each ring has a number and type of meeple it can hold. The tricky part of Santa Monica is finding a way to maneuver these meeples to the correct feature card. With movement being at a premium, it's easy to get stuck with a bunch of wandering locals and tourists, which results in a loss of points. You're not completely without help, though. In addition to the sand dollar special actions, there's a food truck and a foodie meeple on the display. Take a card next to the food truck, and you'll gain a sand dollar. Take a card next to the foodie, and you'll gain a free movement. The food truck and foodie move after you've taken a card, and sometimes the two will meet, which gives a double bonus to whoever takes the card there. I love how easy this game is to learn, yet how deep its strategy goes. In fact, I could see analysis paralysis being an issue here. Do you take a card with movement on it to get your meeples to an activity ring? Or do you take a card that gives you sand dollars even though it has no scoring on it? And when you have sand dollars, do you take the special action while leaving a juicy card available for your opponent? It's these choices that I love dealing with in Santa Monica. They're not a brain burn, but this isn't merely a simple tableau building and set collection game. There's a spatial element to the game that can really get the brain churning though as you try to figure out how to get your meeples to the right spots. And with three different sets of scoring objectives, games will vary depending on how the cards are revealed from the deck, so replayability shouldn't be an issue here. With gaming options limited these days by COVID, designer Josh Wood uploaded a rough draft of a solo variant to BGG and it's a terrific way to experience Santa Monica as a solitaire game. For the solo game, you're playing against a simple AI that takes alternate turns and collects front row cards based on a D6 roll. Once you've collected 14 cards in your tableau, score as usual, then score for the AI's cards that it's collected during the game. It basically scores everything it has with no regard to adjacency rules. This solo option is my favorite kind of variant. It's a simple AI that I don't have to fuss over and it provides a solid challenge. Thanks to AEG for the review copy of Santa Monica. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. This has been the 5 by your five-stop shop for rapid-fire board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and check out our website at 5bygames.com. If you like what we do here on the 5 by and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 5 by Games. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming!